You're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of Encyclopedia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on this Sunday afternoon. Uh, only one week until the federal election. That's what uh, we've been talking about over the past uh, couple of weeks. But today we're going to be talking uh, all support, don't punish, because today is Support, Don't Punish Day. Uh, it is a uh, global uh, day of advocacy uh, for the uh, for the recognition that health and human rights are probably more important than throwing people behind ju- uh, behind bars to to teach them some kind of lesson or something like that. Uh, this is Encyclopedia. Thank you to Freedom of Species, who will be back next week uh, on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, digital and streaming at the website, 3cr.org.au. That's also where you head if you want to find Freedom of Species podcast or our podcast. Uh, Or if you go along to the program page, you'll also find uh, links to us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, And on Facebook, there are plenty of pictures and videos uh, from yesterday. And uh, yesterday, we were out in Footscray, Ash. Yes, indeed. How are you doing? <laughs> How are right, you feeling, uh, ready for the federal Yeah, election? yeah. It's a it's a long been a long campaign. Um, the Green Left Weekly program on three CR uh, interviewed me on Friday morning, so so that was good. Um, all the best Check to Zane in the election. Too. Yep. So, uh, who's Zane running for? Uh, he's running for the Socialist Alliance. For the Socialist Alliance. Well, good luck, Zane. And um, did he have anything to say about drug policy? Um. Not on that show. I mean, they were interviewing me, so... (laughs) Yeah, but um, they they do have a pretty good policy, so after you put me number one, you might want to consider that. (laughs) There we go. We're we're deciding where your votes go on this. But um, So you're running uh, in the election, uh, clearly. Do you want to give a quick little uh, plug for yourself since you're here? It's one week away from the federal election. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, My last little chance for a plug. So um, the major parties have been disappointing. It was all stigmatising people who use certain drugs for the last few years. And now it's come round to election time. There's very little in any of the policies of the major parties that really addresses those core concerns. So if you are concerned for the health, human rights of people who use drugs, if you're concerned about the safety of our communities, then voting for uh, Drug Law Reform Australia, voting for me in the seat of wills is a good way to reflect that in your vote. Okay, that's my pitch. We should get on with the okay. show now. <laughs> I was just, I was hoping somebody's taken my stoner sloth button away. Like, seriously, guys, I need this stoner sloth button. Anyway, I'll get my stoner sloth button back uh, later in the show, I'm sure. Um, we are going to get stuck into some news in just a tick, but I uh, will just uh, quickly mention some more stuff about the uh, the federal election because Harm Reduction Australia did put out uh, a bit of a, a scorecard uh, that uh, various not-for-profit uh, organisations put out before the election to try and uh, sway you to vote uh, one way or another, especially if that's uh, uh, something that's important to you. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, both the Greens and the Australian Sex Party uh, hit number one. One, uh, well, getting 15 out of 15 on the Harm Reduction Australia um, uh, card. Was uh, was the Drug Law Reform Party No, no, on we weren't on there. They just did, a, I think, just four or five parties on there. Yeah, they yeah. only did a, a small handful of parties. Um, I think Nick Xenophon's party was down the bottom. I think he got the, the fewest. Really? Uh, Liberal were up about seven and uh, Labor were about nine. Uh, Nick Xenophon's was largely because it looks like they just hadn't answered it and it looks like they don't really have many specific pol- policies around drugs. Yep. So there had to be a lot of um, just, just yellow squares, which was... Un- unknown, um, but it's likely that they would have a, uh, a more conservative sort of um, perspective than others. But um, uh, Liberal, obviously, was was fairly do- low down again. Uh, I think Family First might have been on there again, which is, of course, a religious uh, a religious um, 
theocratic uh, party, I, w- I would say. There, there so. is also a write-up on the um, SSDP uh, website, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy website, ssdp.org.au. Uh, and that's not so much a scorecard as just a brief outline of some of the major parties' policies, if you want to check that out as well. And we'll share both of those. Um, so if drug policy is something that uh, interests you for this election, make sure to read uh, a bit of information, both from SSDP and Harm Reduction Australia, so you can at least understand what the other parties are looking at doing. Almost none of the uh, major parties, uh, other than the, the Greens, are looking at stopping things like sniffer dogs and getting pill-checking happening, happening at festivals. Um, Labor and Liberals still uh, standing against that, even though the evidence is there. So they're just purely being ideological at this point, but we've got to keep pushing uh, on those issues. All right, let's get stuck into... Um, Oh, excuse me, my lunch. Uh, no, let's get stuck. Well, something's happened here. Somebody's moved all my buttons. I used to have a, a news intro. Oh, no, there it is. And psychedelia news of the week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or, or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say, oh well, then the, the, the government are not looking after us and therefore it seems as a law and order issue rather than a, a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. So just briefly from the Border Mail, uh, there was an article titled The Wall's Not Enough to Stop Drugs at Beechworth Jail, which is a consistent finding uh, across the world. Um, as a society, if we can't keep drugs out of prisons the world over, it's a ridiculous notion to think that we can keep them out of society. So it's an interesting write-up on that one. Uh, from the Huffington Post, uh, Gino Vambuca, who is the uh, president of Harm Reduction Australia, wrote up a piece, Drug Policy Based on Fear Means Everyone Loses, uh, an excellent piece. Uh, and he was just talking a, a bit about um, uh, the way that drug policy currently works. It's not evidence-informed. It's largely based on um, ideology and also a lot of mythology. There is a lot of mythology that um, that surrounds uh, drugs and what the drug user themselves looks like and what that person uh, uh, could... could could mean to society. There's uh, a lot of sort of uh, social factorings uh, in there. The ABC has reported on a study run out of, I think it's Curtin University, um, examining the dangers and benefits of study drugs. It's been a phenomenon for quite some time in the United States that some students like to take um, various kinds of pharmaceutical stimulants and that kind of thing to ostensibly assist them with um, with their studies. So they're doing some research into that. If you are a West Australian student, you can find that on the um, Curtin University website and we'll post a link on the Encyclopedia page. Uh, there was an interesting story that popped up in my news feed uh, late, uh, late last week from the US. Uh, a couple of guys uh, got caught uh, with a gu- ridiculous looking car, brightly coloured, stupid looking car, uh, going into New York City with uh, heaps of guns in the back and of course 
course, you know, America at the moment, there's a lot of uh, gun debate things going on. Turns out the guy... Um, uh, had licenses for all these guns. Um, he was from a different state. He wasn't actually allowed to be carrying them into that state. But the reason why he had all these guns was because apparently him and his uh, redneck buddy were off on a rescue mission. They were going to rescue a uh, a friend of a friend uh, who had become addicted to heroin. Uh, apparently, um, that friend uh, had later said to the police that she did not want to be rescued, um, which is a, a, a curious uh, indictment on the, uh, the rescuers out there who believe that they're superheroes with guns going to save people from the evil demons of drug addiction but um it, it also turned out that I think it was four months or years, I think it was it was quite quite recently, that his own daughter, the main guy's own daughter, had passed away uh, because of a heroin overdose. So this is your sort of uh, classic vengeful uh, parent who's trying to just look for somebody to blame for something that's so horrible that's happened. Yeah, I would just call it an irresponsible manifestation of grief, really. Yes, that's no. a good way to put it. <laughs> um, sticking with some news on students... Uh, made a bit of a splash in the press this week that two students from a Glen Waverley school were rushed to hospital after they took LSD while on a school camp in the Gold Coast. Um, there was a lot of various reporting on it. The, it's a difficult one to kind of, you know, uh, judge from the outside because um, LSD, they probably weren't in any physical danger but might have been in some kind of significant psychological distress. I wouldn't mm. think that in terms of the things that you might think about to have a better experience on drugs like dose set and setting, I would rank that as a pretty poor setting for if you wanted to experiment with that kind of drug. It seem a bizarre choice. Hey, let's go on our school camp and take um, psychedelics. No, kids, don't, don't do that. Yeah, so, you know, they haven't kind of thrown the book at them from the police side of things, but the school has said that they will give them additional drug counselling and right. we can't really make any judgments on what that might be. So we're um, also looking... Do, do, you, do you have another story or shall we uh, look at some support, don't punish? Yeah, no, let's get onto the support, don't punish So stuff. the hashtag is uh, hashtag support, don't punish. Uh, if you look at that on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you'll find uh, pictures, videos and posts from all across the world. Last year there were, I think, 106 cities participating from all across the world this year i expect it's even bigger i'm seeing a lot of i'm just uh, looking through the tweets at the moment seeing a lot of uh, tweets in languages that i uh, can't read uh, but that is exciting that means that the uh, campaign is all across the world it is a campaign for the health and human rights to be prioritized above throwing people behind bars um, and whatever that means in different countries that will mean uh, different things in, in some countries especially in southeastern asia they're just trying to look to uh, fight back against the death penalty being used as a uh, as as a all too common um, uh, penalty for people for trafficking, or even sometimes I think it probably goes even even for lower crimes sometimes. Well, especially in the Philippines with the incoming prime minister. <laughs> yeah, we haven't haven't heard much more about that yet, but uh, I think it's um, not going to look. Well, oh, here we go. Uh, here's one from Nevada Sporovska, who's actually uh, 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 somebody who works for Fiona Patton in the Australian Sex Party office, and she's got a uh, hash- hashtag support don't punish there, a picture of a pill with a MasterChef logo on it, uh, and she says, this is why we need pill testing, to find out the flavour notes of ecstasy. Thank you, Nevena. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, been some interesting write-ups today. The um, Open Societies Foundation published an article on the um, International Drug Policy Consortium website. And it's a, it's a response to the World Drug Report, which was released on Friday, I think. Um, and that's the report that comes out of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, the uh, main organisation that celebrates uh, this 
day as the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. Um, so they highlighted some of the flaws in that report, and um, it does recognise that prohibition increases the price of illicit drugs and assumes that it deters users, but does not recognise that this often pushes the market underground, causing further violence and corruption. So that's a pretty big oversight. Mm. Typical on, of you know, on um, on economics, it fails to recognise the importance of coca and opium economies for some of the poorest people in the world to secure a stable livelihood. Um, there's been a history of crop eradication uh, programs in Colombia and also in Afghanistan in particular, and it also doesn't uh, acknowledge that forced eradication is a large driver of deforestation, particularly in Colombia and some of the surrounding countries. It also fails to recognise the gender issues in drug use, that uh, a lot of drug policies disproportionately affect women and structural violence against women further marginalises, victimises and disempowers women. Um, And it also doesn't mention the death penalty. Yeah. Which is a, you know... Yes, a large oversight. The um, UNODC is uh, relatively com- a relatively complicit uh, bureaucracy at the UN level in the war on drugs, the global war on drugs, uh, unfortunately. So even though they are having evidence presented against them, they still seem to hold on to prohibition being an important thing for them to hold on to for whatever reason. Uh, from Julian Buchanan, who is a, um, New-, a New Zealand uh, harm reduction advocate, and he's been working uh, in drug policy or has worked in drug policy for many decades, and uh, for his support, Don't Punish uh, Twitch, he's got a harm reduction checklist here. Um, and his checklist is drug consumption rooms, uh, take-home naloxone, injectable prescribing of heroin, and injectable prescribing of methadone, client-led maintenance prescribing, Good Samaritan laws, needle exchange in cities, needle exchange outreach slash mobile centres, uh, drug checking for festivals, medical cannabis to be decriminalised, and decriminalisation of all drug possession. And that's a, that's a list uh, from the, the Kiwi perspective Uh, from Julian Buchanan there. And the International Network of People Who Use Drugs um, have released a statement also. I won't go through all of it, but I will read the final sentence. Um, And that is that meaningful change must meaningfully involve and be led by those most affected by the drug wars, um, which in reality is people who use drugs. And it must be ended on the terms of people who use drugs. Now, uh, we're going to cross to what we heard uh, yesterday at Footscray at Madden Square for support, don't punish. This is a full uh, list, uh, full uh, list, listening of the speeches that were uh, at yesterday's event. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Nick. This is being recorded for 3CR Community Radio, which is on 855 on your AM dial. Uh, also at the website 3cr.org.au. It's for the show in Psychedelia. Uh, I'm going to pass uh, over to Greg Denham now from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, uh, who is going to host our speakers session this afternoon. We've got a number of speakers from different organisations. And Greg, uh, if you would like to uh, join the microphone with a stand. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Greg, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. And uh, before we uh, go through... Um a bit of a, I guess, uh, an introduction. I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're upon today, the Boon people. And I'd like to pass my, um, I guess, respects to um, the elders, both past and present. 
Um, thanks for coming along today. Uh, a small but very vocal and passionate crowd, which is um, great to see, and uh, the weather is actually fine up for us, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, this uh, particular event today, Support Don't Punish, um, is actually technically tomorrow internationally. It's, um, it's an event that has been operating, I guess, for about three or four years now, and um, many people may not be aware that um, the International Drug Policy Consortium uh, uh, designed this, this event, this, this international event, uh, in response to um, the International Day Against um, Drug Abuse, which um, in the past has um, meant that many countries um, enacted quite severe laws, um, and in some countries um, they actually had um, executions of drug traffickers on, on that day. Um, in um, in response to to drug issues, so the International Drug Policy Consortium put uh, support don't punish day together in response to that, and um, and since then it's grown to a, I guess a, a global event, particularly through social media where uh, people throughout the world wear the t-shirt that I'm wearing um, and the support don't punish t-shirt and. Uh, take selfies or hold events and um, as we are today hold um, an event and have a special sort of activity and we've got our um, street art our street artists uh, putting together the um, the logo for support don't punish just down the laneway here in Madden Square in Footscray and I was explaining to a couple of people earlier on um, that if um, you've been around for a while like I have and uh, there's a couple of people in the audience looking around that uh, would know uh, well that this particular area here, Madden Square, was once I guess the epicentre of the um, heroin market in Footscray. So um, it's quite I guess appropriate that we have this event here today. So um, I'm going to introduce a number of speakers and we're very fortunate to have some some excellent speakers here um, today this afternoon to talk about a, a range of issues and it's not just about uh, I guess um, drugs and and drug use it's very much about what is the impact of those particular issues on people's lives and the focus is very much around what what impact does um, the crim criminalizing of drug use and potentially a criminal record and Potentially further, um, a stint in jail mean to people when, um, when you know they're using an illicit substance. So, the first person I'd like to introduce is uh, Magistrate Tony Parsons, who's very kindly um, come along today to talk about the role of the drug court that he runs in uh, Dandenong. The drug courts um, have been running for quite some time, and we've. Um, had them here, or Tony will talk about that, but um, we've had them here for quite a while and they've been uh, evaluated and shown to be very successful. They are a way in which, um, I guess, the criminal justice system can deal with people who have particularly chronic and problematic um, and ongoing uh, drug use and um, it impacts upon them and others. So could I just introduce Tony, please? Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to uh, speak at this important meeting today. Uh, I want to talk about uh, therapeutic jurisprudence, or TJ, in general terms, uh, but in particular about the work that the drug court's doing. So I'll start off by making an obvious statement, I think obvious, and that is that there are two types of people that populate our prisons. There's a small group of really serious, nasty, evil people 
who scare the hell out of me, who should be behind bars for their own good, for the good of the community. We're not talking about that group today, we're talking about the other group, which is a much larger group, who find themselves populating our prisons because they have serious life problems that are inextricably linked to their offending, which get them, gets them behind bars. And there's something we can do as a community for those people. The traditional approach of the criminal law hasn't worked. Research tells us that if someone commits an offence because they're homeless, when they're released from prison, if they're released into homelessness, they're going to offend again. If someone commits an offence and goes to jail because they've got a drug addiction, the research tells us if they're released back into the community and there's nothing done about the drug addiction, they're going to offend and go back again. Same with problems of mental health. If the mental health is behind the offending, they commit an offence, they go in when they come out, and they've got to come out sooner or later, if nothing's done about their mental health issues, they're going to go back in again. It's a revolving door. It's seen all over the world. In response to that issue, a concept called therapeutic jurisprudence started to develop over 20 years ago. Jurisprudence is a term that describes broadly the administration of the justice system. And therapeutic jurisprudence is the administration of that system underpinned by therapeutic principles. Now, all that sounds like a mouthful, but it's really very simple. If the system addresses the problems that are inextricably linked to the offending behaviour, if we don't worry about punishment so much, but deal with the problems that are connected to the behaviour, we can stop the offending. So if people's offending is because, for instance, they have serious mental health issues, and we can treat those mental health issues and resolve those, we're going to stop the offending. It's rational, it's logical, and now it's supported by the evidence. So there's two examples of TJ that I can quickly point to. One is the ARC list at Melbourne, the mental health list. That list brings people in who are in the criminal justice system because of difficult mental health issues. It addresses those mental health issues and it has two outcomes. It improves the well-being and health of the person in the program and it reduces or eliminates their offending. That's the subject of solid evidence. The second example of therapeutic jurisprudence are drug courts. It's the court that I'm involved in in Dandenong. Drug courts started out in 1989. The first one was in Miami, in Florida. So they've been around for more than a quarter of a century. In the United States, there's more than 3,500 drug courts, and they're in 20 different countries, including Australia. We have one in Victoria at the moment. It's the one I work in, in the Dandenong region. But we've got more coming. That's a good news story at the end. How do they work? They're exquisite. They combine the coercive power of the criminal law, you do what you're told or you'll go to jail, with the best treatment options that the community can provide. So what happens in reality is that there are people who are committing serious offences that are directly related to their drug and alcohol addictions. And our program at Dandenong is focused at the hard end 
We're focused on the people who have intractable drug and alcohol addictions who've had those problems for often decades. We're focusing on people who've been in and out of jail most of their adult lives. 60% of the people who come onto the program have been to jail before. I'm uh, sorry, 80% have been to jail before and 60% have been to jail on multiple occasions. So we're focused on the hard end. And the way it works in practice is that I sentence them for their offences applying the normal sentencing rules. Their criminal history, the number of offences, the seriousness of the offences. If I decide they shouldn't get a jail sentence, they're not eligible for my program. If I decide they should get a jail sentence, then I sentence them to a term of imprisonment, but they have the opportunity to serve that term in the community as long as they do two things. They comply with a really rich, well-resourced, intensive treatment program, and they don't commit serious offences whilst they're on the order. Now, it doesn't matter whether I send them to jail, whether I sentence them to six months, 12 months, or two years, we've got our hands on them on this program for two years. And that's important because people with a long-term drug or alcohol addiction suffer brain changes. And the brain's a great organ, it can repair itself, but to, for those neurological pathways to repair, it takes nine to 15 months of abstinence. So that's why we've got our hands on them for a really long time. And what happens is they come onto the order and the first thing we do is we look at their housing. If they haven't got safe, stable housing, they haven't got a chance. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation if we all didn't have safe, stable housing. We look at their physical health. If you've got a screaming ulcer or a toothache and you're addicted to heroin, it's the best pain relief medicine knows about. You're not gonna deal with your heroin addiction if you've got those physical health issues. So we screen their physical health. We screen their mental health. We look at any acquired brain injuries so we know how to work with them. We line them up with psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors who specialise in mental health. We organise uh, drug and alcohol counsellors. We set up individual treatment plans for each and every individual. And when they come onto this drug court program, they're so busy that they don't have to look for jobs if they're getting new start. They have to do supervised urine screens three times every week. If alcohol's a problem, they've got to test every day of the week. They've got to see their drug and alcohol counsellor once a week, their clinical advisor once a week, their case manager once a week. They've got to come into my court and see me once a week. And my role is to apply classic behaviour modification techniques. We can build all of these services around people, but we've got to push them along the right path, and that's my job. Behaviour modification, it's another technical term that means carrots and sticks. When I see positive behaviours, I've got a whole lot of rewards at my disposal and I incentivise that behaviour by rewarding people on the program. Anything from praise, a round of applause, a couple of tickets to the footy, a supermarket voucher, or at the high end, I can actually reduce the jail sentence that sits over their head. And when I see negative behaviours, I sanction that behaviour. So a dirty urine screen normally cops a day's jail from me. And if they accumulate seven days jail, off they go into the cells to serve that time. Not the end of the order, it's about people being accountable. It's tough love. It's like our parents treated us when we were kids. There's rules in the household. If the kids don't obey it, then the parents do something about it pretty quickly. That's what I'm doing in the drug court. And it works. We've got a 40% success rate. Now that doesn't sound record breaking, but if you think about the cohort we're dealing with, people who have been to jail multiple times, people who've struggled with alcohol addictions for decades. It's a huge outcome. And we measure our success with two measures. The first is the improvement of the lot of the person who's on the drug treatment order. We measure that in terms of their health improvement, their psychiatric improvement, 
and the reduction or elimination of their drug and alcohol use. And the second measure of success is the reduction, is the, is the benefits that the whole community enjoys, the reduction of the burden of crime on, their, on the community. And we've got very clear measures. People who complete the drug treatment order, two years after the completion of that order, demonstrate a 34% lower recidivism rate than similar people who don't have the benefit of the drug court. We actually save, remember these people would be in custody but for the drug treatment order. We actually save the prison system every year $3.8 million in prison bed savings. That's 14,000 prison bed days saved to the taxpayer a year. So it delivers massive benefits uh, and it's quite a unique program. I think I must be running close to being out of time, so I'm going to just ask for any questions, but um, before I do, the good news is that as part of the State Government's ICE Action Plan, in the last State Budget two months ago, the uh, Treasurer announced uh, an additional $32 million to build a drug court in the city. So now there'll be two, there'll be one in the city, but the one in the city is going to be two and a half times the size of Dandenong. And it's going to have a catchment area that's going to reach out past Footscray, almost as far as Sunshine, down to Wyndham, Werribee. It's going to reach to the northern suburbs because the corridors of transport are so good, it'll go to the other side of St Kilda and it'll go and include Yarra, which is Richmond, which is where I live, and I can tell you that's a, that's a hot spot if ever there was one. It's an asset that is desperately needed by our community uh, and I'm delighted to be part of that uh, initiative uh, by this state government. So I think that's enough. That's Drug Court 101. I'd just like to say thank you very much, Tony, for um, making that <clears throat> very important, um, I guess, explanation, giving us some insight into the workings of the court. And I know that uh, it's a very, very difficult and challenging role as a, a magistrate to, uh, you know, to be able to, I guess, not only intervene in someone's life, but also intervene in a way which you know will be not only um, better for the individual, but also the community as well. And often we forget about, you know, we the magistrates are there to also act on behalf of the community. So um, thank you very much. Um, now, my next guest speaker, next presenter is going to be Dave Taylor, I think, from VADA, uh, Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association. Dave's a senior project officer. Uh, he's, he works in an organisation which is the umbrella body for drug and alcohol treatment sector in the state. Um, and he's going to talk to us a bit about the issues around um, treatment and other, and other issues related to, I guess, treatment and the criminal justice system. So could you make Dave Taylor very welcome, please? Thank you, Greg. Um, tough act to follow after Tony. Um, look, I'd like to start by acknowledging traditional owners of the land which we speak on today and their elders past and present. I, I'm from the alcohol and drug treatment peak body, so there's about um, all the state-funded alcohol and drug treatment agencies in Victoria, well, the, most of them are members of VADA, and so we attempt to speak on their behalf in certain matters when we can. Uh, just I might throw a little bit of data at you generally. About one in 200 Australians um, 
a current last year engaged with alcohol and drug treatment in some form, whether it was a bit of counselling or residential rehab or anything like that. There's research out there saying that uh, 200 to 500,000 people, obviously a pretty broad number there, but between 200 to 500,000 people actually need treatment, can't access treatment for various reasons. That brings it down to probably instead of one in 200, maybe one in 100, maybe one in 50, maybe even one in 30 people actually need treatment. Uh, what happens to these people, do we think? Well, I've been looking at um, some stats in Victoria. So our unmet demand for um, alcohol and drug treatment, some of it might end up in front of people like Tony and Tony's court. A lot will end up in front of standard magistrates' courts. A lot will end up in prison. A lot will end up, um, a lot of people will end up um, requiring ambulance attendances or going to emergency departments. So the point being that alcohol and drug treatment is sort of like the fence at the cliff. Courts, prisons and ambulances and emergency departments are at the bottom of the cliff. So there's a really strong need to look at enhancing alcohol and drug treatment, increasing the capacity and ensuring that people can access it when they need it. It's not much use if you can't access it till for three months after you need it. So I guess that's one of the first things I'd be saying is that there's a significant amount of unmet demand and we need to do a lot more um, to try to meet that demand. Uh, I'd like to also talk about something, you're going to get a lot of lengthy terms, you've got therapeutic jurisprudence from Tony, you're going to get um, uh, justice reinvestment from me. So I'm not going to go on and get too caught up in it, but generally what it means is that uh, you look at those communities which are experiencing the highest levels of disadvantage which are contributing strongly to the prison system and you look at building the resilience of those communities. There's a fellow called Tony Vinson who's done a study of postcode by disadvantage. So he's looked at every postcode in Australia and he's found that a very small portion of postcodes contribute a lot, of, a lot to the prison population. So he used about 22 measures, things from uh, low education to high mental health to high demand for alcohol and drug treatment to high crime rates and he assesses each postcode based on that. So if you looked at those postcodes which are experiencing the highest levels of disadvantage and then you built up the services to address that disadvantage, therefore building up the resilience of those communities, you'd start spending a lot less money on prisons. And you start spending a lot less money on prisons, you start spending a lot more money on education and hospitals and maybe even drug treatment and a whole range of other preventive activities. So I guess there's two thoughts I'd like to put out to you. Broadly speaking, and I know that we're talking about we're talking about spent convictions and we're talking about decriminalisation and so forth. We have a, a burgeoning unemployment rate, especially around young people in some areas. I was in Geelong the other night and the unemployment there is it's skyrocketing for young people. Um, young people with criminal records for minor possession offences, which might prevent them from getting jobs, is, is not helpful. It's not helpful with regard to getting these people engaged, creating a sense of dignity and independence and so forth. So clearly we need to look really closely at the way we work with that. Police, uh, criminal record checks are useful in some circumstances, um, but not across the board, and it's a really flaky system at the moment. We need to look more at that. On decriminalisation, I think that there's a whole raft of evidence internationally. We can look toward Portugal, for instance, and we can see that there's some really big gains there. Now, I'm not saying we can simply go and get a system from another country and put it over onto Australia and it's going to work off the bat, but what we're doing now isn't working. We had an overdose, the number of people who fatally overdosed in 
Victoria in 2010 was about 330. 2015, it's up to 450. 450 people died. More people faster passing the road toll. The ambulance call-outs, it's skyrocketing. It's, it's, it's a real problem. What we're doing now isn't working, so we've got to start doing something new. We have to have a full conversation with everything on the table. We have to reflect on international evidence, and we need to do it now. Each year of delay, what will it be? Another three to 400 deaths, preventable. Preventable. Thank you. I think Dave raised a number of issues which um, I guess go to the very core of what we're here for today and that is the impact of illicit drugs not only on the individual but also family, friends and others who, um, you know, who um, are experiencing in some respects what another person is going through in terms of their, um, their drug use. We do have a question from Tony. Um, I'll just repeat that. So that was a question from uh, Tony Parsons from the uh, Drug Court, and it was, uh, could you just talk to us about what works overseas? Dave Taylor from VADA. Uh, thanks, Tony. Um, look, I suspect you might be a little more well-travelled than me, so you probably know some of the answers to this, but um, I appreciate that. I think that, um, you know, for instance, looking at Portugal, I don't have the stats on hand, my understanding is that there's generally been a reduction in... Um, in the rate of bloodborne viruses and overdoses and so forth. Um, I think maybe a slight reduction in demand for alcohol and drug treatment and certainly significant savings and reductions in um, justice-related expenditure. So I'd reflect, reflect on that in considering what, we'd be, what we should be doing in Australia um, as least foundational or a basis for consideration. I also would speak strongly on alcohol and drug treatment. There's a study which isn't overseas, it's Victorian-based, and it looked at a group of people and how much they were using ambulance services and emergency department in the year before they went to alcohol and drug treatment, obviously people who had a dependency issue. And then it looked at the, after finishing the treatment, it looked at the uh, ambulance and acute health service usage rates for the year after they got into alcohol and drug treatment. And not surprisingly, the rates were much, much lower um, after they'd gone the treatment compared to prior to going to treatment. So that's a significant saving. Uh, an alcohol and drug treatment place is cheaper than a prison bed. If someone comes into alcohol and drug treatment, they're probably going to be in a better state than if they walk into an emergency department. So as I said before, those sorts of things, it's, it's the fence at the top of the cliff. And there's obviously stuff we can do before alcohol and drug treatment, a whole range of prevention-based activities which could be used to reflect on. Um, so yeah, I, I hope I sort of answered your question. I'm, I'm not particularly well-traveled, Tony. So. <laughs> Um, I, I'm just curious about, um, Tony was talking about the expansion of the drug court system and, and things happening here in, um, within sort of the wider city area. I'm wondering um, if there's anything sort of set up or in place at the moment to address the need in regional and rural Victoria? Uh, look, the Victorian Alcohol and Drug um, Association has been a really strong and robust supporter of the drug court, been calling for it for years. Um, and sadly, uh, there's not any drug court facilities beyond the one in, now forming in Melbourne and what we've got in Dandenong. I note there was a parliamentary inquiry into methamphetamine back in 2014. It called for a total of, I think, four drug courts, um, one in Geelong, one out in Gippsland, and uh, one in Sunshine, as well as the existing one in Dandenong. Uh, 
that's really sensible. Um, I, I think that certainly we need to have these options in regional Victoria. The, the challenges in rural and regional areas differ from metro in accessing services. There's also a different health profile on the people there. So uh, generally speaking, across the whole breadth of health services, getting readily available services in rural areas is more challenging than what is in metro areas. Drug courts in rural areas, we need them and we need more uh, health resources there too. Hi. It's actually not so much a question as a comment. Uh, my name is Venetia. I work in uh, drug and alcohol treatment. And yes, I think we need to have more treatment available and we need to expand it. But there is treatment available that isn't accessed as well. And I think that's about changing a couple of things. One is really addressing the stigma and discrimination that people who use substances experience, which I think is a big barrier to engaging with services. And the other one is changing the public perception of what drug treatment is. Drug treatment's really changed in the last 20 years. I think there's been a lot of improvements. It's now much more evidence-based. But I don't think that story's out there. I think when you think about, you know, if you're a general community member and you've never engaged with drug treatment services, you probably think very much on a kind of American model and you're not really thinking about what's actually available and that we, we work from a harm reduction focus, most of us. So I think if we change that public perception, we get a lot more people accessing treatment who needed it. Uh, I think Venetia probably should have been up here instead of me. Uh, I've got nothing further to add than other my, my full support of what she said. Yeah, got a question. What about um, some common sense for valve, these dirty needles on the streets? Give a 50 cent bounty or something so they go back to where they come from. Then the people with no money will pick them up because you're talking medical waste, right? Disease, cross-contamination, kids playing with darts. You can't, uh, look, otherwise zading your bedding, it's, it's not, I, I think, not a logic there. Yeah, look, I think the issue of needles and syringes on the streets is a really, is a really challenging one because I know I work um, in the area of, um, you know, needle, I work in this kind of needle and syringe area as well and, and I know in North Richmond, for example, there's lots of needles and syringes on the streets. The issue for me with that idea and, um, and I think we're always interested in hearing, you know, about new approaches is that what happens if you get kids picking them up and taking them down to the needle exchange to get 50 cents back. That's the only thing that, you know, people that go out and collect them have to have tongs and gloves and that type of thing. It's not getting done. Sooner you won't be able to go to the beach unless you've got shoes and sandals on. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's everywhere. a reflection on the number of people that do actually inject drugs rather than the efforts of the services to, um, to address that issue. But uh, look, I think it's a good point. Take the uh, issue, if you dispose of the needle properly, uh, take the arrest part out of it. You're doing the right thing. Put it. The boxes don't even. The bottles don't even fit in the boxes. A lot of the things. Mm. Right? The whole infrastructure is up to shit everywhere. Yeah. Look. Look. I know that a lot of people that use um, drugs in in public places inject them are really fearful of the police and they're worried they're going to get caught with their needles and syringes. So, so they get rid of them quickly. Hang out. They're sick. They're not a mental for, for proper faculty. Right. Yep. There's a lot of legal argument there. Interesting. What what's really happening? I think that's a, an, a. I guess that's a point we need to make about the need for more services. Look, I'd just like to bring up a point which Venetia mentioned about stigma and discrimination, and I think that that goes to one of the core issues that we're here for today. And for those people who just arrived, you may be wondering what's going on. Uh, this is the Support Don't Punish um, event activity for Melbourne today, and it's an international event which um, looks at and focuses around the need to 
support people who use illicit drugs rather than punishing them. And part of what we're calling for in terms of, particularly from the law enforcement um, against prohibition standpoint, which is where I'm coming from, is the decriminalisation of drug use. So we, um, we believe that criminalisation or criminalising drug use is another way in which drugs or, or drug users are stigmatised and discriminated against. And I think that's something we need to, you know, have a conversation about with uh, and the impact of that. Because I know there are some people out there who believe that that is a good thing, that we do criminalise drugs, because it does stigmatise and discriminate and deter people from using drugs. But what we don't realise is that the majority of people that use illicit drugs actually use them quite safely. And it's the policies around illicit drugs that cause harms, not so much the drugs themselves. So. The impact of drugs can cut across many people, many sectors in the community, but one of the areas that, or the groups of people that it does impact significantly is, to, is, is families. And families, um, you, know, you know, in various, in various ways, um, experience, um, I guess, the, the, the worst aspects of um, illicit drug use, and that can include things like overdose um, and a whole range of other issues. Criminalisation is one of those, of course. And uh, we've um, invited some people from Family Drug Support along today to talk about their role and what they do. And I'd like to introduce Michael, firstly, and then Debbie from Family Drug Support to talk about the impact of illicit drugs and the criminalisation criminalization or criminalising of, of um, drugs um, on uh, people that they work with in family drug support. So could you welcome them? Thank you. Uh, thanks very much there, Greg. Uh, look, uh, I've got a few notes here that I'm, I'm going to read from today and uh, I'd like to thank everyone for coming and uh, also like to pay respects to the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the, uh, the land that where we're gathered today. Look, drug use is a health issue and really families want services that assist rather than punish and criminalise people in a way that frequently creates lifelong penalties, not only for the individual that's using substances, but families are also penalised through their family members gaining these penalties. The truth is most people do not develop problems. In fact, research continually shows that 85% of people who use drugs don't develop problems. And with that, how is it how is it logical to actually criminalise these people and marginalise those people? And with the 15% of the people that do develop problems, who benefits from the approach of punishing in individuals by limiting their job opportunities, potential for some licences and also their travel abroad? The evidence is really quite clear, with many countries now having changed legislation, both within Europe, and we're seeing this now occurring on a state level in the United States. What we're seeing is they're recognising that punishing users does not bring about positive outcomes for the individual, it doesn't bring about positive outcomes for their families, and it doesn't bring about positive outcomes for the community. Our laws actually, in fact, create many of the problems um, that we have existing in our community today. Our government is refusing at the present to have pill testing. The core reason for having pill testing is to save young people's lives. And the result of not having pill testing is we're going to have more people, young people die, because the just say no to drugs policy that has been operating in Australia with a harm reduction model just doesn't seem to be working. And just saying no to drugs hasn't been working anywhere around the world. 
in fact, the United Nations thought by the year 2010 we would have a drug-free society around the globe. That was from the 1998 um, United Nations General Assembly on Drugs. What we've actually seen is the doubling, the tripling. I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but that approach just really hasn't worked. So what are we going to do about things? In Victoria, oh, sorry, I should say in Australia, we've had about 5.8 million people in the course of their life that have tried cannabis. We've got 1 million people across Australia using it in the last year, 750,000 people that have used it in the last week, and 300,000 people that are using it on a daily basis. That is a huge amount of the population that we're criminalising for their activity. In many cases, they're not causing harm to anyone else. It's a civil liberties where they, they're using it um, for the way they wish. However, with cannabis, we're seeing most of the Australian arrests for, um, in regards to drugs is actually pertaining to cannabis use. We've had around 61,000 people, which accounted for 65% of the drug arrests and around 80% of those were for possession. We frequently hear from Daniel Andrews, Martin Foley, Minister for Community Services, Lisa Neville, Minister for Police, and the Police Commissioner Graham Ashton that we cannot arrest our way out of this. But since the ALP has come to power 18 months ago, we've introduced new laws. In Section 71AC, we've had an update to increase penalties for trafficking nearer at schools, and worryingly, trafficking in a public space of 500 metres of a school can land you a maximum sentence of 20 years imprisonment. The majority of dealing that takes place within 500 metres of a school is adult to adult, not adult to child. And what takes place when the first 15-year-old child is bringing a trafficable quantity of drugs to school, are we really going to put a 15-year-old in, in jail for up to a maximum of 20 years? We also have new laws in regards to um, being in possession of uh, information in regards to growing um, and trafficking of um, drugs and the manufacture of, of methamphetamines. And with that, we're looking at a five-year punishment for just being in possession of something. Quite interestingly, um, on the uh, Australian Federal Police YouTube, um, they actually have the instructions, basically minus a, a couple of small details in how to manufacture methamphetamine. So I wonder if they'll actually be one of the first ones charged. Nevertheless, what are our goals as a society? We've heard from Tony Parsons and it's encouraging that the, uh, the Victorian government has, has taken a, a, a great lead there and it's a shining light of what's taking place in Victoria with $32 million being invested on the drug court that's going to be taking place in, in Melbourne um, that will be starting on January the 1st. So that's fantastic. Nevertheless, what are our goals as a society? If our goals are to save, create a safer community by reducing crimes to committing um, finance drug purchases to reduce violence and save lives of people of using substances. And if our goals are to smash drug cartels and biker gangs dealing in large-scale commercial quantities of drugs, we do have the answers, and the answers aren't through prohibition. I felt like Kennedy there. I was just waiting for, for the shot to hit me. Um, sorry if I've offended any locals. <laughs> But our, our, our drug laws and our prohibition actually creates the Al Capones of 2010, 2016 we're actually in. Um, it's cost 
cost effective, it occurs with decriminalisation, it occurs with medically supervised injecting centres, it occurs best with government regulation and legalisation of substances purchased through government licensed premises so as to protect individuals from the harms of unknown purity and toxin. It is to protect families and it's to protect and make healthier and stronger communities. We see prohibition creating the chaos we see in Australia and by a reinvestment in health and support services and by the taxation of these substances, we will have the funds to build a better and safer community. Other countries are making evidence-based decisions. It's about time we in Australia also make decisions on evidence rather than the media-driven antiquated opinions that are killing people, destroying families and driving crime and fear in our communities. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I'd like to introduce Debbie. Thank you. Hi, my name's Debbie. I am a volunteer for Family Drug Support. I came to the organisation because uh, I've got five adult children, all uh, who were successfully pursuing their goals in life, uh, but one of them ended up with a problem with heroin. And so straight away I had to work it out. Uh, the first thing I found was the stigma around uh, trying to get educated was really, really difficult. And his problem with heroin uh, lasted uh, 10 years. We, were, we went in and out of every court in Victoria. I know the, all the courts. Uh, I know a lot about the prison system now, which I didn't really want to know about, but I do know now. Um, but what I did find very early on was that it was much more important for me to support him uh, rather than judge him. So, um, and and... It'd be great if the community could actually um, be supporting um, and the government supporting people. Because what I found in that 10-year journey is that today he's a very successful, running a very, very successful business. He, um, he, he realised he would never get employment with his, um, with his list of um, uh, offences. But he certainly knew he could start his own company. So he started up a very, very successful company that he's running now. Um, just about um, to buy his, uh, well, he's already bought a house. And, uh, but he only could do that because during those years, our family um, learned to um, support him and to make sure that his self-worth didn't end up in the gutter through that period. And so we didn't concentrate on the drug use. We concentrated on um, keeping his self-worth worth up and not doing this, these weird things like tough love and... Um, you know, he was he was um, certainly had to take the consequences for his actions, but he certainly didn't have to be stigmatised by us, his family. Uh, I made sure I always had an Alexone in the home so that if he did overdose, that he, we kept him alive because I couldn't certainly couldn't help him if he was dead. And uh, I certainly kept them minimising, make sure he always had clean needles, made sure he kept them in a safe, made sure he um, uh, didn't... Uh, didn't you know? I don't condone drug use. I don't condone crime. But I realised when you were using $600 a day of heroin, the money had to come from somewhere. So I, I, at one time, he was working full time, doing crime all night and doing all his community service all weekend. You know, I, I just couldn't believe how, how anyone could do that much work. So I knew when he, when it was all over, he certainly, he, he's put his all that effort into a business and he's doing really, really well. Um, but, um, you know, I, I saw very early on that if he had have been given heroin probably in the morning and heroin in the evening, that he probably would have... Um, if he had been prescribed heroin in the morning and heroin in the evening, 
it would have saved the community so much money. Um, so many people wouldn't have got robbed. So many people wouldn't have lost their belongings um, during that period. Um, um, I've uh, now got a son that's um, having a huge problem with ice. And again, I'm going through exactly the same experience with him. He's four and a half years into his problem. Um, but again, it's about supporting him, uh, certainly not rescuing him um, and, um, you know, stepping him through um, what he, you know, what he's got to do with his life. And, and, and I think my other son who used heroin, really, he just got sick of the drug. He got sick of it and eventually he stopped. Um, but it was in his time and he had to work that out and he had to go to the services that were available for him to use. Um, my other younger son is also using services, um, but he's the stigma around it is so difficult that he finds it even difficult being open with me because of the stigma around it, you know, in the community. And uh, but but it's just from what I've what I've gone through, I've really realised that it's the support that's the most important. Being there, and that's what's so important with the community to be able to be there for people that have got issues around. Um, around their drug use. Um, again, they fall into a small minority, um, but it's a small minority that really, um, if the community look after them and care, then uh, they're, they're causing less um, strife in the community. Thank you. We're going to wind up the uh, speeches now. I'm going to hand back to Nick and he's going to take over. But look, I'd just like to thank um, everyone for attending today. I'd like to thank our guest speakers. Uh, we do appreciate very much uh, you giving up your time today to talk about uh, the issues that you raised. And there were so many issues that were raised, it, it's, it's impossible to go through everything today. It would be a conference. In fact, you know, the thing that I'm trying to do with my role with law enforcement against prohibition is actually stimulate conversation in the community. And this is what we need to do. An event like this today, okay, we didn't have a huge crowd, but what's gonna happen from here is that we're gonna have a massive um, social media effort. We're going to look at Facebook and other ways in which we can draw attention to this, not only this event, but also the issues around the criminalization of um, drug use. And I think everyone here, can be a part of that. You're all on Facebook, you're all, you're all connected in some way. It's about making those connections and ensuring that you know you have a voice and that you promote um, a discussion within the community around the need for drug law reform. Thank you to everyone who has been a part of today and helped with the efforts to get this event off the ground. Nick has his back to me because I need to uh, remember all of the agencies that are on the back of our T-shirt in terms of uh, promoting and, and organising this event and being a part of it. Harm Reduction Victoria, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, Family Drug Support, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Yarra Drug and Health Forum, 3CR, um, Harm Reduction Australia, Australian Drug Foundation and, and Encyclodelia. I can't quite, I should know that, but I always get that wrong. So um, thank you very much everyone for attending. I appreciate the fact that you've come out today. The sun's out, so we'll enjoy the rest of the day and we'll call it quits. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, as I mentioned, this is being recorded for In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, uh, which is on 855am, uh, also at the website 3cr.org.au. It'll be played uh, tomorrow from 2pm, and there'll also be a podcast available from next week. This is In Psychedelia.
Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You've been listening to Encyclopedia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page.